Excuse me. It's the I had chakwetiao, fried noodles, and I had chili oil. So my esophagus is coated with this chili oil, and so I'm not. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just have this sore throat. Not good before, before doing this. Um, but yeah, that was fun to make, fun to eat. Uh, tastes like those canteen chakwetiao, if I'm honest, because it has no liu, no ingredients inside of it. Uh, I only had really just noodles and kimchi, so it's vegan. There isn't even egg in it, um, and oh, it's good enough. It's good enough. It was tasty. Nice lunch. Uh, and then I, as I was eating, I think, oh no, I forgot. I haven't done daily Bible reading show today yet, so I'm just going to read the first two readings, and then I'll do the other two in the evening times, uh, just so that it's not too long. Uh, okay, so let's let's start properly. Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. It is Sunday, March the 7th. And this Sunday morning, we're looking at two passages, Exodus chapter 18 and Luke chapter 21. Let me begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a wonderful, sunny Sunday morning. And thank you so much for our gatherings in our churches today where we could hear your word preached and Christ proclaimed amongst your people. We thank you for our leaders and their faithfulness in serving us in this way and bringing us your word and help us, Lord, to treasure it and to take it in and to apply it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 18. Let's look at what it says. Exodus chapter 18. So here it is. Jethro, the priest, sorry. Uh, sorry, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that the Lord had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. I'm just checking. Can you see like my, my laundry? Okay, all right, I'm going to fit it out of frame. <laughs> Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that the Lord had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your, her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. <clears throat> Sorry, chili oil. 
And Moses and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that was he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent um, the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So in different groups, I mean, um, so... Uh, kind of like a hierarchy of different different overseeing structures of authority, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Verse 22, And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So the whole chapter is about his father-in-law. Interesting. Uh, by the way, I can't really see see my phone um, because the sun is shining and it's so brilliant today. And lots of people are running and walking outside. Um, yeah, and it's really glorious day. But because of that, I can't actually see what's going on on my phone. But it is so easy to do this on my phone. I'm just plugging my microphone into this. I don't have to, you know fiddle with some kind of settings on my computer. This is so much easier, so much less stressful to do this on Instagram. So I love this. Um, yeah, this whole chapter about Moses' father-in-law coming and going and leaving him with some advice. Then that's it. So interesting. You know, in the midst of all these big, big occurrences of plagues and even all these miracles of the manna and of the water, you know, this guy's father-in-law comes and gives him good advice. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, first thing to notice is that Moses' father-in-law is not, I don't think, I don't think he is, a, he is an Israelite, is he? You know, he's not traditionally of the people of God, and yet he recognizes that God is the only God. You know, Moses actually has to retell 
all the occurrences of the Exodus. He didn't know this, this happened. He had to retell it to his father-in-law. And as a response, as an outsider, he says, oh, wow, your God is the only God. And this guy seems to be really, really wise and really, really trustworthy. Because for one thing, Moses sends his wife and his children to Jethro, his father-in-law, for safety, I guess. Uh, when he was doing all this stuff in Egypt, he probably didn't want his wife and his two sons to be with him. And that's new. That's new. I think the last we saw Zipporah, his wife, he was she was actually traveling with him down to Egypt, I think. You remember that whole business of the bridegroom of blood thing? God almost killed him and Zipporah actually circumcised his son along the way in this in this um, B&B somewhere. And yeah, so actually I thought she was with him, but apparently not. Moses sent her away to be with his father-in-law. So verse one, Jethro comes and you know he'd heard of everything God had done, but verse two, uh, Moses had actually sent, you know, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, and so along with her two sons. And so it reminds us, reminds us of who they are, Gershom and Eliezer, the two sons. One means sojourner, the other means God is my help. And this is looking back to the instances when Moses had to run away, run away from his country. You know, he was wanted for murder. <laughs> and so he had now to become this alien, this sojourner, this traveler in this foreign land because he's neither here nor there. He's neither Israelite enough because he's rejected by his own people. He's neither Egyptian enough because they want him for murder. So he becomes this stranger in this other foreign land in Midian. And so he'd been living there and he had a son called Gershom, but he also had another son called Eliezer because God had helped him. And he says here, God had delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. God saved his life. So uh, Jethro came with Zipporah and the two sons and came, verse five, with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where Moses was encamped in the mountain of God. Now, this is interesting. Have they reached uh, Zion yet? Have they, made, have they reached, uh, si sorry, have they reached Sinai yet? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but it implies that maybe, maybe, or at least they're on the way. Uh, and when he sent word to Moses, he said, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming to you with your wife, with her two sons. Moses, verse seven, goes out to meet his father-in-law and he shows a lot of respect. He bows down and kisses his father-in-law. And so they ask each other their welfare. So Moses actually has to tell him, verse 8, about everything that God did, you know, retelling the Exodus again of what Pharaoh did to the Egyptians and all the situation of hardship that had come along them along the way and how God saved them from that. And interesting again, Jethro's response to all this, he rejoiced, it says there, for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that the Lord had delivered or saved them out of the hand of the Egyptians. You know, a surprising uh, response from a non-Israelite looking at what God had done for his people. And surprising I say that because Israel themselves had not recognized that they had not rejoiced, they had, uh, had hard hearts against God, even though they'd seen all these things. But this outsider, you know, this wise father-in-law actually was able to recognize that God was so good in saving them from slavery. And verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the God who has delivered you 
out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Amazing, isn't it? He acknowledges that God is greater than all the other gods, maybe even his God. And so he starts worshiping Moses as God. Verse 12, he brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. And Aaron and all the other elders came and they ate before God. And this idea of before God means in God's presence, meaning God probably accepted Jethro's sacrifice with favor. And yeah, really, really good. Really good a sign of uh, his father-in-law being witnessed to by his son-in-law and coming to faith perhaps. Well, that was the day before. Verse 13, the next day, Moses gets down to business and Jethro has some advice for his son-in-law. So Moses has a busy day the next day. He sat down to judge the people. And apparently this takes all day, verse 13, from morning till evening. Lots of people standing around him. And I think they're coming to him one by one by one, bringing him this case and that case and th that case. Morning till evening means there was just nonstop, <laughs> no time for rest. There's just so many issues to deal with. And verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing, he says, what are you doing? Why do you sit alone? And all these people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because people are inquiring of God, they come to me. Verse 16, they have a dispute and argument and they come to me and I decide between this guy or that guy. And I let them know the statutes of God and his law. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said, this, this is not good. And he's giving advice to his pastor's son, his God leader's son. And it's actually good advice. And I think it's advice from a worldly perspective in a sense, you know, it's just common sense, but it's still good and godly advice. He says, you know, you can't do this alone. You wear yourselves out. Uh, imagine like today, um, you know, a pastor has been working the entire day preaching and dealing with this issue and that issue. And his non-Christian father-in-law says to him, if you keep doing this, you're going to burn out. And it's like that kind of situation, this non-Christian outsider recognizing um, a problem and applying just a very wise principle that will help with that. And it it's credit to him and it's a credit to Moses that Moses listens to him. You know, he says, verse 18, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy, too heavy. This is too big a load. He recognizes when someone's being overworked and he says, you're not able to do it alone. And essentially he tells him to spread out the work you know, or to entrust other people to take bits of the responsibility upon themselves. They appoint other leaders, in other words. Verse 19, now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases before God. So you have this special position whereby you have this connection with God. And so anything to do directly with God, that's where you need to be. Verse 20, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. In other words, your job is to teach them 
God's word, teach them God's commands. The point is not to just to deal with the nitty gritty single person issues, but to deal with what God is teaching them. Interesting again, a non Christian teaching this pastor to do his job. Verse twenty, warn them about statutes, about laws, make them know in which they must walk. So the, these are. Big principle, big teaching points that God Himself is teaching His people. You shall do that on behalf of God. Verse twenty-one. Moreover, look for able men from all people, people who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Look at now. Notice this. He's talking about people who have character. Is that to say people have an MBA, people who are experienced in? He doesn't even say who have、uh, positions as judges or even elders. He just says to look for able men, you know, who fear God, who have this character of who actually know God, you know, who have this relationship with God, and they're trustworthy. They hate a bribe. And he said, "These are the kinds of people that you're supposed to give authority to." And he creates this structure of thousands, and then amongst the thousands, then they, and then you break it down to hundreds, and then break it down to fifties, and break it down into tens. So, in other words, they are looking out for other people who look out for other people who look out for other people who then adjudicate across all the peoples. In verse twenty-two, and let them judge the peoples at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. You still have that role, but any small matter, let them decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all these people will also go to their place in peace. So more will get done. You will be sustained. And God will be the one working behind the scenes to direct you and to guide you in all the responsibilities that He has given you. Verse twenty-four. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law. He didn't say, "Oh, you know, who are you to tell me? I'm Moses. I'm the prophet of God." No, he said, "This makes sense." And behind this, you know, you can't help but think that maybe God was the one who was directing, you know, this advice from his father-in-law. God was the one who was giving this kind of like very commonsensical approach to dealing with responsibility. And credit to Moses for recognizing that. You know, he did all that it was said. You know, verse twenty-five, Moses did exactly what Jethro told him to do. He chose able men. Out of all Israel, made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases were brought to Moses. Small matters they decided themselves. And then Moses' father-in-law went home, departed, went back to his own country. Good, right? I mean, this kind of thing. Someone who is willing to listen to good advice, i.e., a pastor, but someone who is also able to recognize, you know. So、um, this non-Christian person coming to faith in God by hearing the gospel from his son-in-law, but also then able to contribute, able to contribute from his own wisdom, from just having lived through, <laughs> he 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 just having lived long enough, and just being able to recognize the situation as what it is. Perhaps maybe he was able to do this where the leaders weren't able to. Because you know Moses was so much more、um, authoritative; he had more responsibility than them. And it maybe took someone like Jethro 
you know, in his position before Moses to come in and to step in and to give advice that Moses himself would recognize. Maybe there's that. But also Moses himself um, recognizing that he needs help. You know, if you're in ministry, if you're someone who has this great responsibility today, you're preaching God's word and you're leading God's church, it's not good. He says, it is not good for you to do this alone. You know, it almost echoes what God says to the man. It is not good for you to be alone. And now Jethro is saying this to Moses, it's not good for you to deal with this responsibility alone. You know, Moses needs a helper. You know, just as man, you know, God created a helper in the form of the woman for him. And it's saying not just in marriage, but especially in serving God, it is not meant to be a burden to be born by any single one person. It's meant to be shared. And there's just that beauty, that kind of relationship where it's worked out, where more people are able to do that work and share that work and give glory to God in doing that work together. Yep. Okay. So that's Exodus chapter 18. Yeah. Uh, very encouraging and very instructive. I think um, just very commonsensical. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jethro. Yeah. Luke chapter 21. So we're moving on to Jesus. And Jesus is here at this point of time in Jerusalem, specifically at the temple. So he says all these things. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So it's interesting that it says Jesus looked and Jesus saw because he's actually looking at the people who are worshiping God through their offering. And he sees two groups of people. He sees the rich and he sees this poor widow. The rich are putting money. They're contributing to the offering box. So they're being generous. But he also saw this poor widow. He notices her and he sees that she puts in this two small copper coins. And this is the equivalent of like 5p or 20 cent back in Malaysia. And someone puts in 20 cent into the box. And, you know, compared to the hundreds or thousands or even many, many, much more money that comes from, um, from the rich, you know, what's 20 cent? What's 5p? And Jesus says, I tell you truly, amen, amen. I tell you, this poor widow, she put in, in this 20 sen much, much more than all of them. He's not just comparing with that amount of money compared to everyone else. And this is in the temple. This poor widow, she put in more than them because all of those tr people, rich people contributed out of their abundance, spare change but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And here is Jesus recognizing sacrifice, where it is difficult, where it's given, and where it's generously offered to God. He says, you know, sometimes that relative sacrifice is worth more to God than that 
objective amount of money that is given in that check by that rich person. Uh, I can't help but think of. I actually mentioned this in a rec recent meeting. Um, there's this um, mission group where uh, they're trying to raise money amongst Christians, and they're trying to think of ways to encourage more Christians to be involved. And I said that was a good thing. You know, the point is to get more Christians involved in the giving, and maybe not to focus so much so much on the amount of the giving. Sometimes the only and that's this is because sometimes we wait until the last moment, we wait until we need the money, we wait until we have this urgent crisis. It's oh, we need money, and therefore we focus a lot rightly on the amount that we need to raise so that the help can then be met. So, but I was saying, you know, before we get to that point, the point is to give everyone that opportunity to respond to God. And you know, everything we do in worship is actually a response to God, whether it's, you know, believing in the gospel. Or in in fact, like this, you know, giving money, uh, contr contributing to the work of the gospel. But here you see that you know it's that motivation, that heart sacrifice, and it's not that final amount that matters because Jesus might look at all the people who are giving. So you're trying to raise this this amount for building a church, sending a missionary, that kind of thing, and it might matter more that you encourage people to give. Out of what they have, as opposed to what they have left over, uh, that kind of response again is a response to the gospel, and it should mirror the response of the gospel. You know, it, it shows that generosity, that sacrifice, and it is painful. You know, for this widow to give everything she has, even though she doesn't have very much, and sometimes you think no one notices. Who's going to notice my little? 5p coin inside the offering. No, Jesus said he notices. God sees that. And God actually considers that as more precious, more sacrificial compared to all the big riches that are given by the rich people. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 5, And while some, of, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place by the end will not be at once. Um, they were so impressed with the temple. Verse 5, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And this whole chapter is talking about the destruction of the temple, of the city of God. You know, this is talking about people. It's, it's Jesus' response to people who are very impressed with the externals of this building of this structure that represents this religion. And Jesus is saying, these are temporary things, and indeed these are things that will fall under God's judgment. Uh, now there's, there are two folds to this. On the one hand, Jesus is saying, you know, judgment will begin with the people of God. We actually looked at that verse this morning in 1 Peter 4, um, that actually there's a disciplining aspect of God's judgment that it will begin with Jerusalem, you know, here they are expecting Jesus to bring judgment on the outsiders, kicking them out. But actually the way that judgment works, God will first purify and cleanse his own people. And then it will overflow onto the nations. Uh, 
But here Jesus is saying, so don't be almost fooled by the security that is given by the by the luxury of all these stones. You know, this looks so secure. This temple has stood here for so long. It looks so impressive. Of course, you know, God's going to protect his temple at all costs. He says, the day will come, verse six, when not one stone will be left on one another. You know, I mean, every single thing will be destroyed. And they shouldn't surprise him because this has happened before. Uh, in history, in the history of Israel, God has destroyed his temple, his city before. And that's whole, the whole book of Lamentations. You know, then people cry out and they realize it was because of their own sin that God has visited judgment on its own people. But they've forgotten that. You say they rebuilt the temple. It looks even more impressive. It's actually a lot more impressive than the original temple, this temple 2.0. And therefore they think, aha, now this will last. And I guess that's kind of like a warning to us as well. You know, when we start being, building all these structures and sometimes God, in order to bring home the fact that again, judgment begins with God's people, that he takes our walk with him and our sinfulness against him very, very seriously, that for our own sakes, you know, Jesus will warn us that we don't put our security in these structures. And these structures might be just sometimes uh, the church building, you know, literal buildings, it's, it's just a building. It's not the church itself, it's not the people. Or sometimes a particular form of structure of ministry, again, that uh, is useful and helpful and encouraging, but sometimes can turn into that idol, turn into a distraction. Any any good ministry can, can do that over time. And again, God uh, breaks it down just to show, you know, in the end it's about God and not about these structures. And so when they hear this, they're surprised. Verse 7, he said, when will these things be, teacher? And what's the sign? How will you know that this will actually happen? Um, and Jesus says, um, I think he's giving, he doesn't quite answer it. He doesn't quite say, oh, when this happens, it's true. But he's saying, actually, when you get these signs, be careful when you get what you're asking for, all these signs. He says, see that you're not led astray because many will come with these kind of signs saying, I am he, the time's at hand, kind of like giving that signal before the actual time. And he says, do not go after them because the point is they're trying to lead you astray from God rather than lead you, rather than warn you of the coming judgment of God. And verse nine, when you hear of wars, of scuffles, of tumults, he says, don't be afraid. They must take place. And there's something reassuring about that because unless you've been living under a rock, there are lots of news of wars. And sometimes you get freaked out by that. Oh no, is, is this really the end? Is this really going to happen? Uh, th throughout the Old Testament, sorry, throughout the New Testament, especially with Jesus's warnings towards the end of the Gospels, he's saying, on the one hand, it's going to be super, super obvious, it's going to happen. But on the other hand, there are going to be all these whispers that says that it's going to happen, that it's going to try to lead you astray before it happens. And so the way in which to be careful of this kind of deceptive news, false news, is just to not be too shocked, too surprised when you see these tragedies happening. You know, these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Meaning there is this almost process and there'll be lots of these occurrences before that final end. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So really, I mean, this is as cosmic 
as huge as it can be. You know, huge world wars, nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, earthquakes. You know, and in various places, famines and pestilences. So man-made and non-man-made. You know, tragedies and crises, and you know, famines and pestilences, coronavirus, for instance. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. You know, you'll see. It will actually seem that God is doing this. It's wow. You know, how can you deny this great sign from heaven? But verse twelve. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. So you're, you're concerned about all this big occurrences happening outside. But Jesus is trying to warn you. There's a personal warning that Jesus is given, giving to those who are following Him. And here is now talking about the suffering that we endure as Christians, as on behalf of Christ. Um, there's actually a lot of connection with the talk we just had this morning about not suffering as an evildoer, not as a meddler, but suffering on behalf of Christ, and not to be ashamed of that, not to stop doing the good that may result in suffering, but also results in the gospel being proclaimed. It says you know you, uh, verse twelve. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity <laughs> to bear witness. So and so he starts with that big cosmic tragedy, but he says talking about your personal experience of suffering, and he ends by saying, "Here's here's your opportunity to witness for Christ." <laughs> to bear witness, verse fourteen. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. He's talking about that perseverance all the way to the end. That may cause you to lose your life, but will cause you to gain your life. That eternal life is that ultimate gain that Jesus is talking about. And yeah, essentially, uh, not to be freaked out by all that. But to internally be faithful to Christ in whatever personal circumstances and personal persecution that comes your way, because you're speaking for Christ. That's why verse fourteen, you know, not to worry about how you're going to answer, not to meditate, not to just just be stressed out over it. But Jesus, says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. I'll give you the the ideas. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the ability to be able to speak in such a way. That your enemies will not be able to withstand or contradict. Hmm. Yeah. So um, Jesus is really, really concerned that you continue speaking the gospel for Him, and He will give you those words to be able to speak it boldly and clearly to those who are opposing you, those who are persecuting you, trying to get you to not speak this gospel. Jesus will enable you to continue doing this. To endure against it and to speak boldly in spite of it, verse twenty. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. 
for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is more specific. He keeps mentioning Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, this specific region and this city where God's people were living. He says, when this happens, don't stay here. And again, it's speaking to people who are feeling very secure because, you know, we have the temple. You know, look at this, it's so secure. You know, we've got all these jewels and God must be blessing us. He's saying God is behind these events. And so now God is warning you for your sakes, to flee to the mountains, to leave the city. And indeed, this resulted in the temple being destroyed. It's never been rebuilt. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There's a, like a wall, the wailing wall. There, that's all that there is, but there is no temple anymore. It's been destroyed. And it said that because of this warnings, the Christians actually did flee and they were able to save their lives because of Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 21. Yeah, so there you go. Verse um 20 verse 25 and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and all the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in the cloud with power and great glory now when these things be begin to take place excuse me Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here it moves on from Jerusalem and talks about this more cosmic end, the Son of Man coming in cloud, in the cloud with power and great glory. This is a Daniel chapter, chapter 7 representation of Jesus coming as this figure of the Son of Man receiving all authority from God to bring about destruction and judgment and salvation upon the earth. Both, both are true, you know, that salvation as well as that judgment, because he says he's coming, he's shaking the heavens, he's going to bring this judgment. But also he says to the Christians, your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, and he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place and you know that the kingdom of God is near, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So hold on to Jesus' words. You know, heaven and earth, you know, everything in this creation will be wiped out, will be destroyed. But Jesus promises they are eternal. So hold on to his words, to his promises, to his warnings, to his commands, to his promises. Yeah, verse 34, but, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So don't, again, don't be surprised. Don't be unprepared. And don't be weighed down with this with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. You know, this kind of depression and this preoccupation with just getting on with today, you know, today's worries and today's cares, such that you're not prepared for these 
eventualities, these realities that God talks about, that Jesus talks about in terms of this final judgment. Verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the earth of the whole earth, dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So it begins with the temple. It ends with the temple. It begins with him teaching about the destruction of the temple. It ends with him continually teaching in this temple. And this is just before he's about to be killed on the cross, betrayed and you know crucified and then risen again. The last thing he does here is he warns the people in the temple. And this is, again, uh, such a strong connection to the passage we looked at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, I think it's from verse 12 onwards. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Verse 13, rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Uh, Verse 14, if you're insulted, uh, you're blessed for the name of Christ. You know, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler, you know, a busybody. Yeah, but if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. And verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it, if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if this is what salvation looks like, and this testing, this warning, this perseverance, then how much more awesome and fearful will judgment look like? So both, you know, Christians and non-Christians have to be wary and prepared for that final day, the final judgment, that final destruction, and the final salvation for Christians as well, because we know that God will purify us with fire through his word, through this final judgment, and God will cause us to stand you know, we will be saved in that final day, but he wants us to still stand. That's why he says, do not be deceived, do not be led astray, but still hold on to his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So hold on to Jesus by holding on to his word and by standing firm all the way to the end when that judgment comes, but also that salvation comes for his people. So yeah, okay, I'm going to end there. Uh, this is just the first part for today. Uh, very, very heavy. <laughs> uh, but that's why I'm glad we were able to just look at just the first two readings for today. Now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you prepare us for these times of testing. And as a Christian, we will encounter them simply because we bear your name. Help us not to be surprised, but to be prepared. Help us not to be uh, forgetful, but to hold on to Jesus' words, which outlasts the heavens and the earth. And when that time comes for us to stand for Christ and perhaps even to proclaim him as Lord, help us to have that boldness. You've promised us not to worry, to get stressed about it, but you've promised that you give us a mouth and a spirit and the words to be able to answer those who are asking us to defend the gospel, to speak the gospel. It is you who are speaking to them through us. So Lord, please enable us to stand, to withstand, and to stand firm till the end of this age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you. Bye.